Terry Gilliam, American cartoonist, artist, Python, filmmaker, former Python, filmmaker quite a few more times, opera buff, screenwriter, beard owner, former American, Python once more, and now, of course, a director again, this time of The Zero Theorem, his latest film about a man called Cohen, played by Christoph Waltz, who is tasked with solving The Zero Theorem by his boss, known as The Management, and played by Matt Damon, with the help of his co-worker Joby, David Thewlis, and a femme fatale called Melanie Thierry, who I've probably mispronounced the name of. Say in the future, it's utopian and dystopian, entirely off-beam and incredibly Gilliam-esque. If you love Terry, you'll love the film, and if you don't already love Terry, perhaps this extended Empire podcast interview special will persuade you to love him. Interviewing the perennially unlucky movie maker were myself, Ali Plum, and my colleague, Phil DeSemlin. Enjoy and see you this coming Friday for another regular issue of the Empire podcast. Right, well, I guess we better get started. My first question is, uh, we actually spoke before during the huge... Uh, Monty Python press bonanza that came out after you announced it and it was a very enjoyable experience speaking to all of you in one room and you said that you had been strong-armed into becoming the the naked organist that would open the live show in July, sitting there naked, turning around, looking to the audience and now you open a film with a similarly featherless naked man at his desk and I just wondered if you saw the irony there. Um, I, I do now. I didn't <laughs> then, but the, the fact is, I may not, in the end, be the nude organist. There may not even be a nude organist. So, for those who are keen on nude organists, it's probably best to go and see Zero Theorem, um, because that's definitely got one in it, without an organ. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm not going to make the obvious joke there, but I'll, for once in my life. Another favourite bit, what you're hearing is Terry Gilliam eating an absolutely, what looks like a delicious pan au chocolat. And this is what the Empire podcast brings you, that extra bit of detail. Mm. I woke up, I was told I was going to be picked up in a massive limousine at 10 o'clock with lots of dancing girls and drums and trumpets. And I woke up an hour before, went down to prepare my lavish breakfast, um, and I looked at the clock on the um, oven, and it said 9.50, 10 minutes to go before the the, the parade started. <laughs> and I've been in a blind panic. I got down here, and now my breakfast is amongst us. Could you hear the trumpets from your, from your kitchen as you were prepping? You made it in rapid time. We did, we did. Um, Paul, who's a fine driver, uh, got me down here despite London's best uh, traffic efforts to stop me. Good. We should explain the reason that your timing's slightly out. As you mentioned, you've just come back from Austria where you were skiing, Mm. I assume not snowboarding. No, skiing, definitely skiing, and and surviving. That was the best part of it. Because as I get older, you may have noticed I'm older than I was last time. (laughs) Oh, right, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I am, I am. And uh, my my fear of breaking most of my bones is growing as (laughs) as I age, but I survived. Because I was, I mean, looking at what you have ahead of you this year, obviously you're promoting Zero Theorem at the moment. You've got the Monty Python reunion coming up, Don Quixote all being well. And your opera. And the opera, and a possible book. And whatever box sets you're watching at the moment, I'm glad that you've had a break. You're feeling refreshed. I am. Uh, that is important because I've been worrying about this year because I thought the Python show was going to be the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, and it may well be. Um, 
It's just, I don't know why this traffic jam has all occurred in, in the year as I approach my 75th year next year. Can you believe it? I don't think I'm going to make it, frankly. <laughs> well, we'll take bets at Ladbrokes. This is, we've got an inside track on whether Terry's going to be off. I also love that in the film there is a, the film is a utopia of a sort where it's a super iPad, twitted up, interconnected gloop of constantly telling the world about yourself and buying things and all that sort of stuff and when you walk down the road there is ticker tape that follows you follows the character of Cohen and one of my favourite lines where you want to pause the film and go stop film I want to read this is six feet of rail track filled in with cream Yes, because uh, we do have this ticker tape it's, I think it's about four, <laughs> four lines of different things and some of this stuff is actual some of it is actual. I, for a while, I was just playing around with newspapers and seeing what was head, what the headlines were, what the, uh, the subheads were, and some of these were real. Some were altered a little bit, and I can't remember which is real and which isn't. But uh, they're all part of the rich pattern of life that we share. <laughs> Did the corgis eat the queen's passport? Is that a real one? Yeah, that is that, no, that is a real one. Is it? Yeah, that's a real one. That's definite. The queen, <laughs> the queen needs a passport. I had no idea. <laughs> but this is part. Of, I mean, I, I do make movies with all this stuff in them. You know, amounts of things that you're going to miss when you watch the movie. But the great thing about DVDs and Netflix and everything, we can pause it. We can pick up all these pieces eventually. So it's my my clever way of encouraging people to watch it again and again and again. <laughs> we should mention that in the latest issue of Empire, there is a big Terry Gilliam celebration retrospective where where we pick stills from your movies and you talk about them. And they are those kind of films and those kind of moments that you can stop and everyone has like <laughs> detail and a backstory behind them and and such like. One of them is uh, Bruce Willis and 12 Monkeys. And I hadn't realised that you were a diehard fan and that you liked sequences in Die Hard and consequently went to him for that particular part. Was there ever any thought of having him playing the role that Christoph Waltz ended up Um, in in Zero Theorem? Not really, no, no, because I think Christoph and I had bumped into each other at one of the, you know, the glittery award ceremonies that people of our our stature get to go to. Uh, I don't win, but I get to watch other people win all the time. And I get to meet them. And Christoph was across a crowded room, and we both pointed at each other and said, we've got to work together. So I thought I'd take advantage of that situation. And I think he's such a phenomenal actor, and unique in the sense that, actually a bit like Brian Cranston, somebody who had been a jobbing actor for year after year after year, and suddenly in his 52nd year becomes an international film star. (laughs) Now that brings a lot of stuff with you. I mean, um, frustration, anger, that other people have all become very successful. So I thought it was a great character, uh, or a great actor, to take on a character like this, which is so layered mm. and we don't actually tell his backstory really but you've got to feel that it's there with all the, the frustrations anger uh, confusion disappointment that uh, Cohen carries around with him I hate to bring up Wikipedia during an interview but there is something on the Wikipedia page for this film that gave me pause and I've got to bring it up with you I'm going to read it to you if you don't mind there was a, a time when Billy Bob Thornton might be playing the main role but and it was set to begin production in 2009, but Thornton vetoed filming in London because of his phobia of antiques. Please tell me more. These are the things you learn when you start casting people you admire, <laughs> that they're more complicated. Uh, apparently, Billy Bob Thornton has a fear of old things. Yeah, 
And London is an old town, apparently. It wasn't just furniture. It was architecture and possibly people my age, even. I have no idea. <laughs> but it was... This is true. Uh, and, I mean, I... I, I, I I'm astonished. I don't get it. It may just have been a very elaborate excuse to avoid doing the film, but I don't think so. <laughs> That's a damn good lie. I've yeah. got to remember that one. No, I don't do it. And he probably doesn't fly on old planes, which is smart. <laughs> now, that's a good reason to fear old things, but not old cities, please. So if you'd shot it in, like, Milton Keynes or Telford, yeah. he might have been interested. He would have been there. We okay. would. He would have been. That, that, I should have... Why didn't I think of that at the time? Sequel, Terry, sequel. You can have that one. <laughs> There's got to be one bit of England that isn't old. And this iteration had Jessica Biel and Al Pacino attached. Did it? Well, that's what it says here. Where is this Wikipedia? Who writes this stuff? This is what I mean. I almost feel like people are taking on a Python-esque joy if they go, right, there's Wikipedia. This is a Tony Gilliam movie. I am going to write some bollocks yeah. here. No, th this is quite fascinating. I mean, at one point years ago, I did talk to Al Pacino about Don Quixote. And I did talk to Jessica Biel about, I can't even remember what it was. It may have been this one. Maybe that's the, the fact that is correct. On the other hand, I just might have been cheating on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's Robin Williams. I saw Rupert Friend, obviously, in one of those wonderful kind of fake ads. There's no Robin Williams. No, that's, where that's did that? Fiction. I saw that that's, one. Yeah, oh, you've seen Yeah, that's another one that's come off, off the web. But Rupert Friend is there. And those ads, Ali touched on, are great. You create this kind of... It's really scary kind of information overload, which I think a lot of people feel at the moment when you go out and and something Spielberg touched on in Minority Report. Exactly. Mine are less friendly than his. Yeah. Mine yeah. Are, mine, his is this. He had it all in there. I just wanted. I mean, it basically is my reaction to the, the world as I live it. I'm hammered daily with information. The fact that if you get this, your life will be happy, complete. It's endless and it won't stop and it's getting worse. And, and I, I love. That's why I tried to do the ads much more insistently that they chased you down the street. <laughs> Wendelin Christie is in there from uh, you know, Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, right. She's, she's, and, and Lily Cole is one of them. Ray Cooper, of course. Is, yeah, you just want that these familiar faces that you don't know if they're your friends anymore, whether it's an ad, what's going mm. on in your life. And, and, and really the whole, um, the whole business of tweeting and connecting is bothering me more and more. <laughs> this is why you got to move to Milton Keynes for a quiet life. It's they like, don't tweet in Milton Keynes? No, it's one of the rules. Billy Bob insisted there was no tweeting or, or, <laughs> or Billy. But he may be a tweeter being a man of the new. Oh, true, true <laughs> yeah, enough. Please. <laughs> now, I, I heard, maybe I'm overanalyzing your voice here, but you, you, when you said Brian Cranston, I sensed a Breaking Bad fan in the room. I became an addict of Breaking Bad, I'm afraid. Late in life. I mean, I hadn't watched Breaking Bad until just before Christmas last year. Uh, everybody had talked about it. I had poo-pooed Netflix, as one does. <laughs> They're not going to watch things on that little screen. Luckily, I have a 32-inch, high-definition computer screen that I work on, and I can sit close to it. And so finally, I saw Netflix were offering me a free month. And I said, I can squeeze in Breaking Bad in a month. <laughs> like hell. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, I did it. My wife was away. And for three days, I binged on Breaking Bad. I didn't finish. I only got to uh, um, series four. I finished that. Five was awaiting. And Christmas Day, I finished it while the family was downstairs. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while sailing and things like that. I got through it. I, I think it's... For me, it's been the most impressive thing I've seen in a very long time, and the experience of such a long expanse of storytelling. And Cranston, 
I mean, who we've watched a million times, never paid much attention to. He's the guy there, the other one, uh, was absolutely astonishing. The writing, brilliant. What I think was interesting about it was how it... It's not. It's very uneven. I mean, some episodes are very slow. Mm. Some are better directed. Some are better written. But the totality is just wow, it amazing. Has, it has this figurehead. You know, it has a showrunner who really runs the show, and, it, and it's a, it's a lovely feeling. And what what makes me think excitedly about Breaking Bad and you loving Breaking Bad is there are so many projects that you haven't been able to bring off the ground that are seeming to get a lot of attention. Not necessarily those specific projects, but projects like them on Netflix or on Amazon or whatever. Would you ever consider going to HBO, for example, and taking some of your ideas, say Good Omens or something like that, to that world? These thoughts have been floating around. Yeah, I mean, I actually was talking to Neil Gaiman about you know, you know, Good Omens on on HBO, because then we have the, the the space to expand it, because our script of Good Omens, I think I really like it, but. Mm. I threw out a lot of stuff. We really don't get the joy of all the um, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, their other lives, before they get into wiping out humanity. <laughs> uh, one, one thing I've been thinking about, which is really nice, Vince Gilligan, who brought us Breaking Bad, the last two-thirds of my name is Vance Gilliam. I, could I be Vince oh. Gilligan in another life, or even this life? I, I make it yes. I have no idea, but I'd like to see try. I'm I'm hoping Vince is listening to this and will give me a call. (laughs) I have um, a random question. You're one of very, very few filmmakers to have an asteroid named after them. Um, To give it its proper name, nine six one nine Terry Gilliam, all one word. Have you ever, on April the first, emailed your friends and told them that it was on a collision course with Earth? No, but I am. <laughs> Forget about the asteroid. <laughs> the danger is with you at the moment. <laughs> I'm slowly crashing towards Earth. <laughs> I think it's called death. <laughs> Only for, maybe a small explosion, just me blowing up. <laughs> Not wonderful to be an asteroid. That's amazing. Do you know a lot about Terry no, Gilliam? No, I don't. I just know... I, I forgot what the number was, but there it is. I know all the pythons are asteroids out there <laughs> floating around somewhere. No, 9619, which rather implies there's like another 9618 Terry Gilliams somewhere in the yeah. in the in the asteroid field. I don't know. I I think I think we're more interesting than most of the junk we've dumped up in space. An asteroid at least is natural mm. and we are so organic. Here. True, true. Oh. Now, now we've been talking about the adverts within Zero Theorem and we will get back to Zero Theorem, but I I, when I was younger, was obsessed with the secret tournament Nike adverts. I, mean, I used to watch them as if they're entertainment. They're, it's not selling me anything. I would never buy football-related paraphernalia, yeah. ever. But what was the origin of that? Where did that come from, and, and how do you look back on it? Because you must have well, no, introduced to incredible people with that. Yeah, but it, I mean, I don't have to do much in these instances because there's a company called Radical Media, uh, and it's run by a man named John Kamen, who is was the is the brother of Michael Kamen, who did the score for Munchausen Brazil and Die Hard films. Uh, mm. And uh, and so every ten years, I get very very depressed at my my career. If we again quotes uh, has crashed, and I'll never work again. Career careening. Yeah, they're the same. Yeah, exactly. And it, and and so I say I'll do a commercial. Uh, as soon as I do, I realize I've made a mistake. But we ended up in Rome, and, uh, and it was basically, you know, all these football players playing in the hold of a, uh, a tanker, a super tanker, and boom, boom. And we had 10 days to shoot it. I think the budget was like $10 million. The budget was more than zero theorem, is all I know. 
because you're paying these stars, these football stars from all the great ones that Nike have basically bought, um, and they all turn up. And it was the nightmare about it was that none of them were there at the same time. We would maybe get three, maybe get two, maybe, and and they came with their agents, their business managers. Some were great. You learn some people are like uh, uh, Thierry Henry, uh, wonderful human being, mm. great guy. Then uh, Ronaldo is a jerk. Uh, he's on his cell phone the whole time. Uh, David, David's is an asshole. Uh, let's be honest about it. You can cut that out later, but I don't care. Um, and then. And, and you just get these different people, and you get Figo, who was clearly wanting to be a movie star, because we had um, Eric Cantona as a main character. And he'd seen that Cantona was already on the big screen. He wanted to be on the big screen. <laughs> he was, they were all wonderful, but the, the, the madness of the whole thing is I'm, I, I, I watch football, but I'm not uh, serious about it. And, and being a foreigner, I don't know all the rules. And the agency guys had a million little moves and plans and everything. I was, after the first half half of the first day, I said, you guys know what you want more than me. Why don't you just go out and direct all these characters? And uh, <laughs> I'll just stand back and I'll shoot it when you guys got it the way you want it. And that's what I did for 10 days. I did very little. We had five cameras. We shot, I believe, for this minute-long commercial, probably about 15 hours of film. This is the wastage of commercials. That's why I don't like doing them. You get paid a huge amount of money. They waste millions of dollars, and the film, and then goes out there, and it's changed your life. That commercial, I you, love it. you're still watching. I still love it. I think it's the best. Eric Cantona screaming in the middle of this boat. But I loved Cantona working with him because oh, yeah. he's just he's a ballet dancer as well as being a thug, and that's the combination. It's just beautiful, and he enjoyed every moment, and and there was so much ad libbing. We had a ball doing that part of it. Um, the actual shooting was just a nonsense. And and then, when it comes to the editing, I go in and the editor's got it down to about five minutes. And I say, well, you've chosen all the good stuff. Terrific. And But let's, they want to talk more. Let's do more. And I said, no, I think I've done my bit. I didn't put the Elvis Presley song on it. Somebody else did. I don't know who. I get the credit for it. Uh, the whole thing. I'm willing to tell the truth, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And it goes on. Well, what was hard was dealing with the fact that we had to double all these guys because half of the time they weren't they there. They weren't there, yeah. But that, that's just a, you know, a technical problem. Movie magic, yeah. <laughs> Talking about ads, did you pay full rate for that variety ad that you took out for Brazil? Yeah, I did. They didn't give I, you a discount for... No, like, no, no. I, I, this is in my purest days <laughs> when if you're going to attack a head of a major studio uh, in Variety magazine, you pay for it in many ways. <laughs> and uh, But, I mean, nobody had ever done anything like that because, you know, you look at Variety and it's just uh, columns of how many million the last hour the film has made, blah, 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 all this stuff. And to do something so neat because... Uh, I've got a house in Italy, and and they do these funeral announcements on the side of buildings, and it's yeah, it's a little poster up there, black little black uh, border around it. And then there's the name of the beloved who is no longer with us, and so I use that as my model. And in the middle of this big white space, which I carved by having no dollar signs or anything on it, was just a very neat personal message. Dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil? Signed, Terry Gilliam. Apparently you don't do this in Hollywood. <laughs> 
You don't take, I mean, Hollywood works behind the scenes. It's, it's backroom deals that are done. That's why you have to have an agent, a manager, a business manager, all these people, which you pay most of your money to, mm. to uh, work through the, the back corridors of Hollywood. And I, I just went straight out and did it publicly. And uh, it certainly created a, a frisson in the atmosphere. You can take on the head of a studio publicly and humiliate him like that, and it worked. Uh, it got even worse, actually, to be honest, because I was on a television show. It was um, Maria Shriver, who was, until a few years ago, Mrs. Arnie Schwarzenegger and had was one of the Kennedy family. She was, uh, mm. I'm not sure which member of the Kennedy family. She had, uh, um, on ABC TV, Good Morning America show, seen by the nation. And, uh, and De Niro... Is, which is, I mean, I'll always be grateful to him because he normally doesn't even promote his own movies. Mm. And yet he said, I'll come on the show and do an interview. And that would get us the space we needed for me to behave as I did, which was <laughs> basically Bobby doing the interview. She's asking questions. And Bobby says, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was the interview. And she finally turned to me and said, Ah, Terry, now I understand you have a problem with the studio. And I said, No, no, I don't have a problem with the studio. I have a problem with one man, the head of the studio. His name is Sid Scheinberg, and he looks like this. And I had an 8 by 10 glossy, which I pulled out from my coat and ran up to the camera and held it there so the nation could see the man that was suppressing Brazil. <laughs> and what was the first thing Sid said to you after that? He never knew how to deal with me because he was in a trap. Sid was in a trap because his wife, Lorraine, what's her name? She's the Roy Scheider's wife in Jaws. Anyway, it'll be coming. Lorraine, his wife, really liked the film. Oh. Sid was confused about the film but saw potential in Brazil. I mean, if one could just turn around the ending, make it happy, <laughs> make love conquer all. And I just didn't see that was the story we were uh, had agreed to tell. So... Uh, he was totally confused. Um, he ended up finally leaving Universal. Uh, Lorraine Gary, there we go. Thank God for iPhones and interconnectivity. Yeah, isn't that I mean, great? I just love the technology because as my memory fades, my <laughs> iPhone gets smarter. It certainly <laughs> does. And the battery life goes down more and more. I find. Um, but <laughs> me, my battery. You all have battery life. No, the phone. <laughs> no, I, I, I love that he was confused. That was his abundant problem. He was confused with Brazil. Yeah, and he went off, and when he quit, when he quit, eventually, uh, Universal, he formed a company called the Bubble Factory, which seemed appropriate. You know, just hot air yeah. in enclosed spaces. Quite a lot of irony there. <laughs> Terry, when was the last time you walked through a major rail terminus and thought about the logistics of closing it down for a day? <laughs> well, <laughs> Does that a, cross your mind? No. I, once you've done it, you don't need to do it again. <laughs> it's this a one-time only deal. It's, it's all you need. Once you've got it out of your system, you move on. Move on to airports. Yeah. <laughs> no. Actually, that, there's a strange uh, connection with that. Uh, but No, that was in Fisher King where the script... Um, Richard Legravenny's script, which was the first film he'd ever written, has now gone on to write half the films we yeah. see now, uh, had a scene in Grand Central Station with Jeff Bridges' character uh, in, a, in a kind of a mood, and he hears his uh, poor black lady singing a beautiful song, and he stops in the rush of his life, and uh, he assesses his situation. Well, that was, that was fine, and we were in Grand Central Station wrecking it, and I looked down from the, the sort of this raised area and said, 
oh, wouldn't it be nice in the middle of this rush hour, because people were just roaring past each other, if they, as they passed somebody, they glanced to their left or right, fell in love, and started waltzing. I thought, what a sweet idea that would be. And I said, but we won't be doing it. That's a Terry Gilliam film. And I was trying to make Fisher King and keep it a Richard Legravenese film. And the producers said, what a terrific idea. And I said, yeah, but no, it's, it's, it's me. I don't want to impose myself on this film. I was doing penance for Baron Munchausen, basically. And uh, we did it in the end. And we went into the Grand Central Station. We had it from 11 o'clock at night till 5 o'clock in the morning. And we had 1,000 people in there to dance. Wow. To waltz. Now, we'd gone through the... I said, these people have got to be able to dance before they get there. And apparently they'd all come from these dancing schools around New York. Uh, we got in there, ready to go, and discovered very quickly they didn't know how to waltz. I guess they could salsa and they boogie, but they couldn't waltz. And we had five of the... We had five dance instructors on ladders taking different... We grouped it into five different groups, and they all were teaching dancing in Grand Central Station. It's now... The clock is ticking. It's midnight. It's one o'clock. They're still teaching them how to waltz. It's two o'clock in the morning. And I said, this is crazy. We have got to shoot. And we're not ready. We're not ready. So we have to shoot. So I think it was about three o'clock. We started rolling. And they started dancing. We were running the cameras through. We were doing all this stuff. And I remember we didn't quite make it by five because the commuters were beginning to arrive. And I'm get, uh, we're, we're in a retreat as we're going further, <laughs> further into a corner with the camera and everything. And, and I think the last shot is Robin wandering uh, lost through the crowd. And I said, but those are, those are real people. Those are actors. Robin, just get out there. Wander around there. We'll shoot it. <laughs> and we got out of there. We did it. No, and that that was a, such an important thing to be in the middle of this beautiful waltz, and suddenly on Bing, everybody just stops. Just mm-hmm. it's like it never happened, and it works. And they, they did it beautifully, but it was it was kind of madness. And then I think about a month later, Barbara Streisand was in there doing a film called uh, "The Mirror Has Two Faces," also written by Richard Lecrovney. Maybe it was a year later. <laughs> uh, he's not that fast a writer, and he. Uh, and she was in there, and it's one scene. She just walks through Grand Central Station. I think she had a, took a week to do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we've always never had the money for our ambitions, and so we're, we're forced to do these things with a kind of frenzied mm. madness. And most of the time, we, we pull them off. Just yeah. about. I, you've mentioned, obviously, coming from home. Um, I know... I, this is going to sound weird, but I know that you live up in Highgate, I guess, mm. or thereabouts, because of mm. that wonderful video, which everyone listening to this should watch, where you and John Landis essentially just walk around North London having the time of your lives, I think I can safely say, swearing at graveyards. Uh, and, <laughs> and I was just wondering, what you've got such a body of work doing so much, and what do you keep in your house? What are the mementos that you have in your house? What is framed from your films? My wife. Your wife is framed. Yeah, she's framed. Yeah, she's I framed. got her up on the wall. Yeah. The wall, okay. It's, much, it's tidier that way. Tidier. <laughs> I just, uh, what do I have? You want, really want to know? I do want to know. Well, there's part of me that hopes that there's the, you know, the, the Red Knight is somewhere from Fisher King, is somewhere in your garage. No, the, the Red Knight isn't, but the Angel of Death from Munchausen, uh, the, the little models, maquettes of, of, of John Neville and Uma Thurman dancing as Baron and, and Venus. There's the three-headed griffin with Robin Williams there. I've got the masks, the Greek masks from uh, Time Bandits. Uh, I've got little flying man from Brazil, Jonathan Price, the size of an action man. Um, Are these all about your house? Yeah. 
Not in a special room there? They're in a special room, my special room, the top of the house. The whole top of the house has been handed over to me to do as <laughs> with it as I wish, and I do. And so it's become a great clutter, mm. really. Because most with films, so much of what you've got, the props and everything, get thrown away at the end. They just get junked, and I try to hold on to things mm. that really will... You don't want. They need to be looked after, basically. Yeah. Sure. They seem they're pretty precious, precious cargo. You think? Well, I think see. so. My my son, I think, is selling them on eBay. Perfect. eBay behind my back. They are literally precious. <laughs> what were you doing in Spies Like Us? What were I doing? There's in There's an amazing like sequence where where Chevy che, where they meet mm. a bunch of doctors, and the joke is that they're doctors, and all these people are doctors, and everyone's introducing themselves as doctor. Yes. Did you just spend a whole day just saying doctor a lot? It was basically that. It was John Landis who, you know, had become a friend, and um, and he, he he liked getting other directors or people like Ray Harryhausen are in, is in that scene. Ray Harryhausen and Derek Meddings, who was the, the best special effects guy in England at the time, are in the same scene. Uh, but he would get people like Costa Gavras to appear in his films because basically I just felt he was taking directors and 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 and, and special people, bringing them in. <laughs> and uh, reducing them to bad actors. <laughs> I thought it was John's way of uh, getting his revenge on all of us who are far more talented than he'll ever be <laughs> and far less successful than he'll ever be. But uh, that's what happens. So, and Charles McEwen is in the film. Charles McEwen, uh, who wrote Baron Munchausen with me and, and, and Parnassus, he's in there with Dan Aykroyd's wife. So it's a scene that's supposed to be in Afghanistan, and I'm supposed to be uh, um, a doctor from I think Medicine Sans Frontieres, some, something like that. It's terrible. I'm really bad in it. It's embarrassing. But that's what he wanted. He felt good. Yeah. I didn't, so he succeeded. You played Dr. Imhouse. I'm assuming you spent some time in medical school preparing for the role, just getting your head around the just, deep background of the character. The tricky bit is I just had to check this man's pulse and say, this man is dead. <laughs> and it was as bad as that. That sounds really good. So which director would you like to revenge yourself upon by casting in one of your films? Oh, John Landis. Well, I was hoping the, wanderer, the wandering around London was going to do it, but he proved to be quicker and f faster than I was. But we did have fun wandering in Highgate Cemetery and, 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 and outraging the corpses, or was the guard. I'm not sure which. <laughs> there, there was a bit, I think he comes up and says, did you just say the word cock in front of that... <laughs> gravestone <laughs> and you god bless you say i oh, no, i i don't think i did and then he goes no no you did though i heard you <laughs> it was very funny to see the way that you're supposed to people are underground i mean it's, highgate cemetery is wonderful it actually beautiful i have a gate in the bottom of my garden leads directly into the cemetery no, really yeah and it used to be in yeah it does because we've our house the it backs onto the cemetery and it's a fantastic place but it's 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 being it's been commandeered by some local people who have, are determined to keep um, people respecting the dead. Uh, um, and that's not what they're for. No. Douglas <laughs> Adams is buried there. How can you not be at least a little joyous? You know? so, so is Malcolm McLaren. Yeah, and, and Karl Marx. And Karl Marx, and the man who um, created Penguin Books. All the big names. Yeah. Um, I think Ralph Richardson is also there. God is buried there. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, uh, which is very nice. I mean, it's always nice to know where he is. You live next door to God. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the dead one. Uh, who, is the, who is the god that lives amongst us now? Um, I would say, is Sean Connery? John Landis. John Landis. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> um, 
I, I did not realise that you actually, a young filmmaker, aspiring filmmaker, came to you and asked you for some help on a script called Reservoir Dogs. That's the naffest intro to a question ever. Quentin Tarantino, I didn't know that you, you'd helped him in such a tangible way with that. Yeah, you, put in, you put in all the jokes, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, good, the violence bits are The mine. violence oh, bits here, are mine. just a lot of people standing around talking about work. Uh, and... and no, it was we were it was at, at 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 the Sundance Institute, not the festival, and I was there. And what each year, you know, professionals come there, and the aspiring come there, and they meet. And John, I mean Quentin, had had a very rough week with the people, the professionals before. Who I won't name names. Some of them are well known in this country, who just thought he was a jerk, uh, didn't like his script, gave him a really hard time. Then I came with. The two people that were with me was Volker Schlondorf, who gave us yeah. Tin Drum, and Stanley Donnan, who gave us Singing in the Rain and all the great Gene Kelly and Funny Face and most wonderful things. And we were the professionals. And when I saw that script, I read Reservoir Dogs, I thought, this is fantastic. The writing was brilliant. The dialogue was extraordinary. Just the whole concept. And, and then we met Quentin, who had been battered by the previous group of professionals. And all I think I really did was say, this is wonderful. Go for it, man. And I liked his energy. And there's no question. I mean, Quentin has never changed. I mean, if I'm an energetic, he's twice as energetic. And um, and and I think it just gave him a confidence to go on. Also, what happened there is that he met Tim Roth there, who was ah. at the same time. That's why Tim is in the film. <laughs> and we did see, he did the scene uh, which Harvey Keitel did in the final movie where he, after the bloodbath at the beginning, he's on the, at the mirror sort of cleaning himself up. And Quentin's version at Sundance was all the kind of angles I use and it was just too much oh. it didn't work yeah and by the time he got around to shooting it he calmed down and I mean it's a great film mm. and I get a, a special thanks on it so that's all one can ask for in life yeah true enough <laughs> we don't want to jinx Don Quixote obviously but I wondered um, is there scope for Jean Rochefort a cameo in the movie I do you don't think? think so at the moment I mean I, Jean clearly was the the curse of the curse of Quixote. I don't think I'll ever speak to him again after what he did to me. Okay. <laughs> the ter- no, the, Jean is terrible. I mean, it was it was such a horrible experience because he had worked so hard, like seven months, learning English, and after a couple of days on the horse, he was you know, he was gone. It was it was one. Of, I, I met him when we did. I was promoting Tideland uh, in Paris a few years later, and he was like a different person. He was now suddenly forty years old. He had, hmm. he had in the course of the two weeks. Um, in preparing and then starting to shoot of Coyote, he'd aged like 20, 20 years uh, because of I, I'm we have such various stories of what is wrong what was wrong with him whether it was slipped I, he told me in the end it was a nerve a nerve ending in his scrotum that was the problem so often the way yeah because you don't use that word too often on, mm. uh, so I thought but it's a true thing and um and my wife has never understood it. Well, she's framed up on the wall, so... Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting house <laughs> when you see all these uh, dead things hanging around the place, uh, memories of previous films, and, then the, and my living wife up there, <laughs> that, right over the mantelpiece. It keeps her warm that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Zero Theorem, lastly, David Thewlis is, appears in an incredible sort of... I guess you describe it as a kind of a fat tiger suit... Tigger, Tigger. Oh, it's it's actually Tigger from when he yeah. Well, it, from it, the poo. it was all because of Stephen Fry. I 
went to a party, uh, a Halloween party. It's always because of Stephen <laughs> yeah, Fry. Yeah, Hall- uh, it, was, it was, no, it wasn't a Halloween party. It was, I, I'm going to drop a name or two if that's all right here. Okay. Yevgeny Lebedev, who is the proprietor of yeah, the Evening yeah, Standard. Yeah. He's a friend. And he's got a house in Italy, which is across the valley from my house in Italy. And he was having a little party and he was planning to go to Africa, so that was the theme. And Stephen Fry turned up in what looked like the giant suit that David Thewlis is wearing in the film and he looked so ridiculous we did we did it to David and David loved it if you notice actually what's really interesting with the Tigger suit not only he's got He's doing. There are uh, safety pins through the the tiger suit nipples. Yes, I noticed. The, yeah. <laughs> These are the details that are very important. <laughs> I loved his big tiger belly. I think you leant over and mentioned that to me in the middle of the I, film. I, 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 you know, you know, I was saying about pausing, pausing the middle of the film. That was definitely a pause in the middle of the film. <laughs> anyway, Terry, it has been an extreme pleasure. You have finished your food. The Fantastic co- breakfast. The... I can't remember. Did we talk about anything? But the food's great here. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tip your waiter. All right. Uh, until next time. Thank you so much, Terry, and good luck with your year. Thank you. Thank you. Bonne chance. Bonne chance.